This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hi, welcome to another webcast with me, Ben, uh, ben Aris, the Editor-in-Chief of BNE IntelliNews. I'm very excited today. I'm joined by an, a very old friend of mine, Owen Matthews, who, um, who's a journalist, a former bureau chief of Newsweek in uh, in Moscow, and a regular contributor to Spectator. He's just written a new book called uh, Overreach, the inside story of Putin and Russia's war against Ukraine. So we're going to talk about that. I mean, he has some interesting things to say. Um, Owen's uh, one of the most well-informed and well-connected people I know who does Russia. We uh, we met in the uh, legendary newsroom of the Moscow Times on Ulitsa Pravdi, the Street of Truth, so aptly named, when we were both beginning our careers way back in the day when we were young. Owen, very nice to see you. Welcome. So you've um, just brought out this book, um, Overreach, where you did a deep dive into um, the whole cause of the war and um, Telegraph called it a sensation. I mean, it's a very serious book where you looked into the uh, antecedents to it and think about how we got there in the first place. And I think you could sum the book up as like, it starts with, there's a mystery. Uh, why did Putin do this? This is insane. I mean, the Russia's taken on and started a war in the 21st century that we had no idea was coming and caught everybody out. I mean, I think myself, you included, that no one thought he would actually cross the border and go to war against Ukraine and try and conquer it. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think that's true. And and the the... Uh, I mean, the, the, there's going to be lots of fantastic books. They've started coming out already about you know the story of the war and the you know Ukraine's fantastic uh, resistance and so on. But uh, and that's the, and that's all important. But it doesn't answer the central mystery, as you rightly say. Is you know the real story is actually in Russia, in the Kremlin, and in Putin's mind. You know what was going through his mind, and um, the uh, indeed just like you, I. I never said the war was never going to happen, but um, I doubted that it was going to happen for three really simple reasons. One of them is that Putin was actually doing incredibly well with his diplomacy, like his gigantic saber rattling, you know, and the plausibility of that military buildup, you know, from October through you know, starting in sort of September of, of 2021, building up to the invasion, because everyone was so scared and so, and it was so plausible, and the operational details were all, you know, so, um, so, you know, lavish, and it looked so much like an invasion, you know, three days before Putin presses the button, he has a conversation with Emmanuel Macron, which mm -hmm. Macron's team you know, they're high-fiving each other. You know, there's some very good reporting in Le Monde about this. You know, they think like, great, you know, we finally got a breakthrough because they're talking about a summit between Putin and Biden with, you know, the Germans and the French talking to discuss, you know, the quote-unquote security architecture of Europe. You know, that's yeah. you know a pretty great thing for Putin to have, to have achieved just through a gigantic yeah. love. So the first, I mean, that, that first reason, I didn't think that, that there was any sense to it. Let's, Second, let's there, was, there was no preparation for it. Um, well, let's go through all three, but I just wanted to inject there. I mean, that, that I saw that as well, um, that, that uh, Putin in 2008, uh, Medvedev went to, to Brussels when he took over as president with a security, a new security deal for Europe. 
And this, and it was just got laughed at. I mean, they, they, I actually had a friend who was in the meeting and it just got thrown into the bin. They didn't even look at it. And to put the security agenda on the table the way he did by threatening, you know, by putting troops on the border with Ukraine twice was already a huge gain. And the way I read it, you had two rounds, first with the Americans in January, and then a second round with the French, uh, where they tried to resuscitate the Minsk too. Um, and that was going very well. But all of this threats was just to get this diplomacy going, um, which he did get going. Although the key demand, which was Ukraine shall never join NATO, that was refused by the Americans, Bilkin in particular. And that was the key issue for him at that point. Uh, and when that failed, when it became clear to uh, it failed, then he pushed the button and crossed the border at the end of February. However, I was thinking at that point he would do something like, you know, hit an airfield or, you know, put some nukes into Kaliningrad or something like that. But to actually go as far as full invasion of Ukraine, um, I think, was a shock to everybody. But uh, um, do, do you agree with that? I mean, it, it was very good diplomacy, but it looked like sort of aggressive, but nevertheless diplomacy. Uh, well, I'm. Um... I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think the Americans were particularly convinced because, I mean, there's there's been some fantastic, um, uh, um, very senior level reporting in the Washington Post, talking to all the principals who were in the room in February, in January and February, because there were several rounds of talks between Lavrov and uh, Blinken and the, you know, and the, um, the the Americans said that he that they thought the Russians were perform quote unquote performing diplomacy rather than actually doing it, but um, I mean concerning NATO, um, it's worth unpacking what you just said because that's actually really important. Is uh, you suggested the Americans were actually you know were against the ruling out NATO's uh, Ukrainian membership for NATO? I don't think it's quite as simple as that because actually already you know in the run up to the war and actually literally on the eve of the invasion. Zelensky publicly said that actually, you know, he's basically was willing to walk away from full membership mm -hmm. if there were security guarantees. So it wasn't even a, a, an absolute demand by the Ukrainians, actually. And I think that, you know, the, the high point of Putin's diplomacy was literally like the day before he launched his war. He then he, he launches war and loses everything. But people tend to forget that actually, Viktor Yanukovych, <laughs> who's often described as like the pro-Moscow uh, president that was deposed in the Maidan revolution in February of 2014, although he actually had some serious problems and disputes with the with, with, with the Kremlin. But anyway, Yanukovych, when he came to power, actually codified, he put, he passed a law that Ukraine would not join NATO, but remain non-aligned. And that, that that law even actually was still on the statute books after the after the, the, the Maidan revolution and actually yeah. was only repealed in, in October of 2014. So, you know, for like a five-year period, Ukraine was had literally like codified in law its non-membership of NATO. So yeah. it's not really... A, a huge problem. The problem is that the, 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 the issue was that, of course, Putin, it was not enough for Putin that mm. Ukraine literally had a law they were not going to join NATO. He wanted more, and that's why he pushed for uh, Ukraine to join the, um, the 
the Russian Customs Union rather than the EU Association Agreement. And this is all ancient history, but it's important because now all this stuff that like NATO's inexorable expansion is often cited by the Kremlin and pro-Kremlin voices as this sort of juggernaut that's moving towards inevitable membership. But that's actually just factually not true. Mm. Let's let's um, delve into NATO a bit more in a moment. I mean, I interrupted you. You were going through the mystery and three points. You've made one of them. What were the other two? Well, I mean, the, the reasons why I didn't think he was going to invade the second, the second two are very, are very simple. Is that is that that the, there was no real public preparation, and I actually, you know, um, having you know, knowing as I do, lots of journalists and editors and producers, and even like the heads of some Russian channels, you know, um, for me that was the real bellwether, or I thought it was the bellwether. Is that there was there was obviously the usual sort of hysterical noise about fascists in Kiev and so on, but there was actually no full-scale preparation of the Russian people for, 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 for a full invasion, which I thought, you know, basically meant that the, that, that there was took, took that to be proof that the Kremlin was bluffing. Instead, actually, it was proof that the Kremlin kept its plans even from, you know, senior members of the, of the Security Council until the very last minute. Mm. Um, but the third, and the third reason I didn't think it was going to happen was that actually simply that it, the um that russia had too much to lose and when uh, i'm sure we're going to be talking about this in more length but i mean the 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 logic of you know gerhard schroeder and then angela merkel in forming this very deep energy relationship dependency uh which has been so strongly criticized you know all this, the, the whole germany's whole relationship with gazprom you know for 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 for, for years um obviously created a dependency by Germany on Russian gas, but it also created a dependency in Russia on German money. And mm. in, a, in a logical world where you're dealing with rational players, that is an enormous thing to lose. Your economy strongly depends on having a good relationship with Europe and the Europeans buying your gas. That actually should should be a stabilizing factor. It wasn't, you know, it, so, so I think in, in that sense, uh, uh, Schroeder has, has had a bit of a bad rap, actually, because the, 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 the logic is not flawed. The mutual dependency tends to create a strong disincentive to disrupt that relationship, except mm -hmm. in one case, which turned out to be the case, and that is you're dealing with an essentially irrational actor or someone that actually prioritizes security over prosperity as he sees yes. it I, I think that's key security over prosperity um and that well we'll come back to the minute i'm another in the the preamble key point is that we were shocked and i was shocked particularly at the size of the invasion i mean if it was me i was thinking the way to do it was that you just swap out the you know you admit you've got regular troops in donbass because they were there but they were there secretly it was normally a separatist fight and you then take Donbass and um, this is also a guarantee against NATO because uh, NATO rules are such that you cannot join NATO if you have a disputed border and Ukraine already has Crimea's disputed border so even if it wanted to join NATO it can't because of that and then taking the Donbass uh, more of the same but the key is that he would go for full invasion and just think that he can walk into to Kiev and I got that one wrong because I just couldn't see you know a force of 40,000 Russian men walking into you in, into Kiev and taking it and so I discounted that from the beginning I was just like not an option but it seems that the and I, I've been corrected in the meantime admit that it does seem like that that was the plan and I can't believe that the Kremlin was so badly 
informed on the mood of the people and the military possibilities of doing something like that. And that this was an, an enormous mistake. I mean, Russia had been at war with Ukraine for eight years already, and they knew that the uh, army in, had been modified and modernized in 2014. You know, they were would have walked to, to Kiev in, in, a, in a week easily. But all of the investment that's gone in and the training and the fighting that's been going on in Donbass over the, uh, the interceding eight years meant that it was, go it was going to be a, a serious fight. And I, I can't understand how Putin could have been, what is it, badly informed or, you know, that he, he'd lost touch. I, I think you suggested in your book that um, living in the COVID bubble, that that might have been decisive in leading him down this path where he thought he could get away with it. What, what do you think the thinking was? Um, well, yeah, uh, he, he's, it's the COVID bubble accentuated the information bubble in which he found himself, you know, ha had been for many years. Uh, I mean, the the the, the key thing. Uh, I mean, many people have uh, accused Putin of being, you know, sort of insane or you know being completely crazy. But actually, I I think that the 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 truth is that he's just very badly informed. And in a totalitarian system, all of the groupthink and telling the boss that he's right, you know, um, mm -hmm. instincts of Russian bureaucracy just sort of become calcified. So in fact, so, so what yeah, and in fact, even democracies are not immune to that. Because if you look at Bob Woodward's uh, book, Plan of Attack, where he's sort of very carefully reconstructs and the, the, the events leading up to the Iraq invasion of 2003, you see that, you know, intelligence services have a tendency even in democracies to tell their bosses what they want to hear and that's of course you know, true a million times over for within the fsp so and what you have is actually sort of a, you know a, a pyramid of 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 disinformation uh, which every level is not just incentivized career-wise but incentivized because they're all stealing to actually tell their bosses so you know and 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 the, and the chain of command is you know putin you know asks his foreign intelligence chief Sergei Nabushkin, or the head of the FSB, Alexander Bortnikov, particularly, you know. So, you know, how's it going? Have we succeeded in bribing, suborning, recruiting all of the Ukrainian military, political, and intelligence community? And Bortnikov, like, calls his main man, Colonel General Sergei Biseda, who's been running the subversion operations. He has his own department in the FSB, um, specifically de de um, you know, devoted to. Uh, undermining the Ukrainians. And, you know, Biseda is handing out bribes right, left and center, his people are. So he causes his station chief in Ukraine, in, in, in Kiev, you know, everyone is telling their boss that they have recruited this source and that source, and they're all telling them great things and, and can I have another half million quid, you know, and, you know, the, 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 the amounts of money, we don't know how much they were handing, they were, they were hand, uh, being uh, handed out, but the, one of the deputy heads of the Ukrainian security service, the SBU, um, uh, certainly was he a deputy head or a regional head? Anyway, but, uh, you know, a senior F uh, uh, um, Ukrainian intelligence official is caught in Belgrade with 75 million in cash. For seventy-five million dollars in cash, you know, so so you know, they're clearly handing out a gigantic amount of money, um, is going down and leaking at every level, um, and upwards is going information that everything is going according to plan. You know, you need to buy something for your money, so there's just sort of like a very sort of practical reason why you know he is being lied to because all the people down the chain have a vested interest, career-wise and materially, to lie. 
So what do you think his miscalculations were? I mean, because Kherson, that worked. I mean, it seemed very clear that that was given to the Russians the day they walked in right at the beginning, a regional capital, an important one, but the only one. And one assumes that the, um, the FSB were bribing all the other regional governors where they could, uh, and it didn't work. But So that was one miscalculation. The, the intel, um, the operation to subvert didn't work. What else was there? Um, well, the, the, uh, on a fundamental strategic level, um, the mistake is actually sort of somewhat understandable. I mean, it remains a mistake, but you know, the, the you know, qualitatively, their mis his his mistake was to assume that the future was going to be like the past, which mm. is, by the way, what every single, single human being does, and mm. you know, it's the basis of all of all the planning and logic. You know, you just assume that what happened in the past will happen in the future. Except that he didn't realize how, much, how seriously things have changed. And a really good practical example is, you know, in the summer of in in, in July of 2014, the um, the Ukrainian army encounters Russian regulars in the field. It's in August 2014 at um, uh, Ilovaevsk, and they get completely destroyed. And then again, the following summer in July of 2015, there's another disaster for the Ukrainian army at the Baltsevin, where again they. So the two times that Ukrainians and Russian armored troops or motorized infantry have actually clashed in the field, the Ukrainians have lost massively to the Russians. And as you rightly said, the Russians didn't understand the extent to which Ukrainian army had actually you know, been sort of forged in the fire over the subsequent eight years and actually, you know, had very good NATO advice and had changed its command structure and all these things that actually contributed to their successful resistance in uh, February, March of, of, of 2022. But, um, and another example is Putin's massive miscalculation about how the Europeans and NATO would react. Mm. Um, it's not irrational for him to think that the Europeans value their, their cheap gas over their principles because that's precisely what Angela Merkel did. Like in February of 2014, Angela Merkel is going around saying, you know, this is, you know, this this cannot stand. The annexation of Crimea is an outrage against the against the rule of law. And then, like, gosh, like 14 months later, she's literally sitting down with Gazprom in defiance of the, the, the Americans, by the way, who are warning about gas dependence and signing a $10 billion gas supply deal for Nord Stream 2 with Gazprom. You know, so the Russians are not crazy to assume that the Germans are just total hypocrites and their words are written in water and it's all seen in blah, blah, that mm -hmm. actually that they will actually be equally indifferent and equally cynical when he tries to take the whole country. But again, you know, this time is different. Do you action. think um, there, there was also um, an element that, you know, the, the Russians complained that uh, Maidan was American-backed plot and you had uh, Newland on the on the square handing out cookies and you had, um, what's his face, the senator fly in and give speeches from the stage and that they organized that. And if the Americans can do it, why can't we? Because uh, at the same time, you know, the support for the West, um, Ukraine is very divided and in the West, of course, with the nationalists of Poland or the Polish parts of the country are very pro-Europe, but then in the East, that is very, or it was very pro-Russian. I mean, Russia files, um, Kharkiv is Russian-speaking city, um, and they thought, the Russians thought that we could play the same game because, you know, at the end of the day, you just throw some money around and that's possible to do, like the Americans did. Yeah, precisely. I mean, if 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 that is your belief that the the, the Americans could organise a coup in Kiev, you know, why can't the Russians do it? Because there's you know much much closer, better connected, and you know, um, ha, ha, 
willing to devote many more resources to it. Yes, that, 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 that was another major fallacy. And it's actually part of an even bigger fallacy. And that was, as you rightly said, like a little bit earlier in our conversation, if Putin had tried to pull this, had done this in the spring of 2014, mm. when Ukraine, Ukraine was in chaos, they had an interim government between February and May um, of 2014, you know, their their country was deeply split and i visited eastern ukraine including donbass by the way in, in that you know in 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 the summer and you know there was there were very there was very strong pro russian feeling in dnipro in kharkov you know um certainly in donbass in donetsk itself and lugansk you know if putin had actually marched in then i think he actually could had a very strong chance of succeeding but what he didn't realize i think was actually the extent to which Ukrainian sort of nationhood or national you know, sovereignty, unity, whatever you like to call it, had actually strengthened over those eight years. And actually, Ukraine became a very different country. And Surely, I mean, this is one of Putin's big mistakes, is that he's actually created the sense of identity of, you know, Ukrainian national identity that was never there before. I mean, before everyone was slightly confused about like, well, we're sort of Russian speaking world and, you know, Ukraine as a country didn't really exist any time in history as a country. Um, and now it really very much does. And, and that's why we're seeing the Ukrainians fight so hard against Russia. Um, and just now more and more that, that there's this feeling of Ukrainian identity, which was exactly what Putin didn't want to create, no? Well, but Putin, um... I mean, it, it it would be tragic. I mean, it, it's sort of tragic in the Greek sense is that, is that you know that your, your hero in this case, or this in this case, anti-hero, is literally the author of his own downfall. His mm. actions cause the things that he feels that that are the sum of all his fears. Mm. So it's not just like in creating a sort of strong Ukraine with a very strongly united and pro-Russian, pro-European, anti-Russian you know, national consciousness, but he's also united NATO. He's given this to, frankly, flagging institution that nobody in Europe was really interested in, um, you know, new purpose, new members. He's actually, you know, alienated, he's sort of destroyed his one major strategic lever, which was you know, the energy dependence in Europe. He's literally caused every bad thing to happen that he went to war to prevent. Yeah, and ironically, I mean, at Davos yesterday, um, Kissinger was speaking, and he changed his position. He was arguing pragmatic, you know, real politics that, you know, we should ex uh, concede that Russia is a major power and that fait accompli, that they've grabbed this sort of bottom corner of Ukraine and they're going to keep it and just do a peace deal to stop this getting worse. But yesterday he said, look, things have gone too far, no peace deal is possible. And so at this point, why don't we just put Ukraine into NATO and take our chances with Russia and its nukes, which is a pretty radical change. I mean, so it looks like now, you know, the the, the arguments uh, people are making to put Ukraine into NATO, which has always been, for me anyway, the, the motivation Putin's doing this is to prevent that from ever happening, could well happen now. So it's turning into a complete disaster, isn't it? Yeah, that's certainly true. And um, and it's interesting that Kissinger. I mean, um, you know, the Kissinger position is um, is interesting because it's based on you know, the Putin regime actually being you know, having some sort of rational calculation of cost and benefit. Um, and that, in other words, that actually there is. A, there was an argument at you know, a certain point of the war to actually 
you know, amputate Donbass, for instance. And in fact, I had several very interesting conversations with uh, Vadim Pristaiko, who is the uh, Zelensky's first foreign minister. And uh, uh, he was fired in 2000. He's now ambassador in London. And he was fired in 2019 uh, for saying, you know, basically, you, Donbass is a gangrenous limb. We need to amputate it. And, you know, Ukraine will be a much better country without it and just sort of you know, and, and continue on our Western course, build a bit, you know, and, and, you know, just let it go. And I think actually Zelensky was um, certainly willing to contemplate letting Crimea go, not the Donbass, but Crimea. So all of these sort of practical uh, considerations of sort of land for peace were very quickly destroyed by Russian brutality. So mm. Bucha was a major inflection point. Mm. I mean, even for Zelensky personally, I mean, speaking to people that, that, that were around him, I mean, when it, when the Russians withdrew from around Kiev and the Bucha massacres were discovered, um, you know, Zelensky, if you, you know, the, the, if you see his, his face as he's going around Bucha, I mean, even his, his whole manner changed. He, like, aged. You know, the, 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 there, were, there were certain inflection points during the war at which... Actually, any kind of compromise with Russia became less and less and less likely. I, I think the last uh, this week's you know, horrific missile attack in, in Dnipro mm -hmm. is another one of them. So, um, unfortunately, it actually makes things more difficult for Ukraine and for the world, frankly, because and it, um, there is um, there the, you know even all these debates that Kissinger initiated about you know whether it's wise to let. Russia retain Crimea or you know part of Donbass or whatever now becomes moot because everyone in the West is shifting towards you know total defeat of Russia and pushback yeah. to Ukrainian borders of 1991. But the problem is I don't think that that's actually militarily achievable, frankly. Mm. Well, this uh, is I think behind the talk of the tanks. I mean, because all the weapons we've sent so far are largely defensive. We're talking about air defense, SAMs, Patriots. Uh, and now the talk of tanks, which are offensive weapons. I mean, uh, Zelensky in his speech to Davos yesterday was saying, what is it? Um, tyranny is is ahead of democracy, that in other words, the Russians are winning. Um, and that he specifically called for tanks, which are an offensive weapon, which the West has been reluctant to provide. And at Ramstein tomorrow, um, that it could be that Schultz actually concedes and sends some tanks because he's under so much pressure. And then that would change things on the battlefield if tanks are sent in sufficient numbers, which I'm pretty sure they won't be. Um, because the two sides, as you say, are hardening. But you, you made a point as well about um, the Russian side hardening because there was uh, peace talks in March, April that actually came quite close. And I remember watching the um, Ukrainian side saying, okay, look, we concede, we will not, we will abandon NATO, we'll take that clause that Poroshenko put in the constitution about it being a national ambition to join. And we'll go back to neutrality. We accept, you know, individual security guarantees. But then on the Russian side, you know, the liberals, the people that have been running the country and, and um, reforming it, and people like Guriev, the economist, who made this very radical, very free market plan, who've been driven out of the country. Now Putin's surrounded by Patrushev, uh, Bodnikov, you know, all of those liberals have dis disappeared. And so he's also hardened. I mean, to what extent do these guys... They've always wanted this. They don't care about prosperity. You said before that it's about security versus prosperity. And the liberal guys wanted the prosperity, but now you're just left with the guys who want security. And surely that's a Soviet mentality where you, the people sacrifice their consumer, their creature comforts, 
as long as you have security. So you put the money into weapons and, and planes and, and missiles. Um, isn't that where we are? Isn't this the Soviet bit of Putin? I think I think that's hundred percent right, and, and and you know I often say that the, the the war happened as a result of a KGB takeover of the Kremlin, and you know I'm not misspeaking. I don't mean KGB. FSB. I mean really KGB yeah. because these people have known each other. It's sort of extraordinary, actually, in, in human, certainly in professional, and definitely in government terms, that a ruling elite have been friends and colleagues for over half a century. I mean, it's it's nearly half a century. It's crazy. These people have been, you know, known each other since the mid 1970s, you know, and they the institution that raised them all was the Soviet era KGB. So the point is that, uh, as one of my sources. Um, told me in Moscow, and he's known Putin, he's worked with Putin for 20 years. Um, he, um, the war is going badly by all kinds of object objective criteria, but actually it's not going badly by the one criteria that the Siloviki, the men of power, actually really care about. Because a Russia that is essentially sort of a war economy under siege from the collective West is the kind of Russia that they want. It's the kind of Russia which needs Siloviki. Mm. They have actually sort of created a world within Russia where all of the temptations for, for to be disloyal, to be pro-Western, to be liberal, in other words, all the material temptations that have been you know, stalking the Russian elite, you know, the, you know, the yachts and the, and the offshore bank accounts and the free travel and all this stuff. And, you know, and even going down to the middle class, you know, the consumer culture and so on. All that undermines the kind of security state that the, 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 the Siloviki are trying to create. So actually, the, the real paradox is that actually what's bad for Russia is actually good for the Siloviki because they've actually... You're describing, you're describing the plot of 1984. I mean, it's exactly that, the, the perennial war, isn't it? Yeah, the perma war. And the, and the problem is that actually, I mean, uh, and the tragedy is um, that these the men around Putin have, you know, have actually achieved what many old men you know doubtless dream about but actually very few actually get to execute which is creating a future that looks exactly like their own past mm. to what extent though is that going to go with the people i mean you and i lived in moscow it's flourished since we were there in the 93 when i was there i think you were there around the same time you know there were no lights there were no restaurants the shops were empty um, the whole economy was flat on its back, and in the you know the 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 subsequent decades that we spent, you go to Moscow now, it's a vibrant city with like excellent food uh, scene and clubs and people with fashion and their own designers and music and you know everything a modern city should have. With still a lot of problems, of course, but. Um, there's a whole generation now of people who don't even remember the tanks on the street. You know, they were babies then, if not not born at all. And they've got used to these creature comforts and they've got used to being part of Europe. And if the Siloviki, if these old KGB nicks come back in again and take all of that away, is there going to be some protest? People are going to push back or will they just simply leave? Because at this point, it seems that the ones that don't like it have left and everybody else is kind of ignoring the war. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, Moscow, um, people who have not been to Moscow recently, you know, find it unbelievable that actually, when I say that it's literally the most modern, or certainly before the war, the most modern, the most vibrant, the coolest, the most sophisticated city in Europe, like, you know, by a million times, you know, cooler than Berlin, you know, cooler than London. It's true, you actually eat better in Moscow, it's much more functional. They actually had, you know, that enormous, that they, 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 they the, the 
striking thing when you watch, as I just did, uh, I'm sure you and other viewers have watched Adam Curtis's um, fantastic Trauma Zone, his documentary series for the BBC. You know, it, it, Moscow in the early 90s literally looked like Mogadishu. It was completely disastrous. It was like a third world city, you know, broken pavements, lines of people in terrible clothes. I mean, it's the transformation is completely uh, extraordinary. That's true. And the really striking thing is, uh, I've been going to Moscow, uh, you know, quite regularly through throughout the war. Um, I was last there I, um, in September, October, including you know, on September 21st when mobilization happened. So. Um, up to the up to up to up to that um, uh, announcement of partial mobilization, Moscow had not noticed at all. Basically, Moscow just didn't care. The war was 100% invisible. I mean, when you scratch the surface and you talk to people in their kitchens, there's all kinds of fundamental problems. You know, the you know the the economy is. You know, sagging. You know, there's there's all sorts of you know, fundamental structural changes that have been brought on by sanctions and so on. But in terms of actual sort of deprivation, my wife is there right now. She says, you know, I came here to like sort of suffer and sort of put ashes on my head, and 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 I, I just sort of find myself in 24 hours being sort of sucked into this sort of vanity fair of just mm -hmm. sort of fun and coolness. And you know the, the the shops are still stocked completely with sort of you know with with Parmesan cheese and French wine. Like mm. I, I know how does that all happen? Nobody knows, but it just happens. Mm. Moscow hasn't noticed, and that's it. That and that's really significant um, because uh, for several things. Because obviously, you know, people would would wish watching the sort of horror that's unfolding on the, in Ukrainian cities. They it's kind of offensive it is offensive to think of muscovites just parting away and not really caring um the vast majority of the middle class in moscow i think are you know basically sort of secretly appalled or you know somewhat appalled uh, but definitely not appalled enough to blow up their lives as let's say half a million or maybe more seven hundred thousand have done and left the country most people who are you know either too poor to emigrate or too rich to emigrate in other words they've got too much at stake just you know muddle on and close their eyes and you know those are my friends that have stayed just say oh you know somehow it's you know we're going to get out of this and everything's going to be fine so but but the, the point is going back to trauma zone and adam curtis in the 90s we are so far away like it's still a million miles away from the kind of you know deprivation and economic crisis that caused you know the, mm. the, the 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 protest that collapsed the Soviet Union we're still a very long way away from that I mean and people's heightened expectations might be an accelerator of that you know people's expectations at the end of the Soviet Union would were very agree, low. Would you agree then I mean it's, it's that Putin broads I mean we were there in Yeltsin's days and, and that was chaos and although he's loved in the West as a democratic reformer he's hated by the Russians because those 10 years were just uh, that was the worst of it and then Putin came, brought stability, and then he started paying 10% uh, wage rises, the public sector, every year for a decade. And it, we worked it out once. If, if you take 30 grand as the average American income, then the equivalent of the increase would have taken average wages from 30,000 bucks to 600,000. I mean, that's what it felt like to normal Russians, that suddenly they had the equivalent of 600,000 as an income. And they will take a lot 
of Putin's crap because they've come so far, they're so comfortable now that for them, the the nightmare would be go back to some sort of that chaos that was the 90s. And, and that has made them very placid. Um, but talking to your friends when you're in Moscow, I mean, the mood there is is what? They're ignoring it or they're mildly disapproving because, you know, from where I sit, it sounds like Putin's propaganda is working. And, uh, you know, our staff in Moscow, um, some, some of them are talking about leaving because they're, they're, they're now fighting with their friends because their friends are all so convinced, yeah, we're under attack by NATO. Putin's absolutely right. This is existential and we have to rally around the flag because we're Russians and we love Mother Russia. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's true. All kinds of really surprising people he would, he would you know, imagine you know, knew better suddenly come out as sort of, you know, rabid, rabid Putinites. It's, 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 it's very strange. The propaganda really does work. Um, I mean, the, 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 and, and you're, you're, you're right to actually undermine, I mean, in one, in this, to people who, who argue that, you know, Putin's high, that, that people's higher expectations are an accelerator of their desire to, you know, change the regime, you can equally plausibly argue, as you just did, that it's the opposite. The fact that people have now something to lose, whereas they didn't at the end of the Soviet Union, they had basically already lost everything. Now that people have to have something to lose, they actually have a stake in the status quo. So they, they, the, 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 the issue for, I mean, in, in any discussion, essentially, between a foreigner and a Russian about Russia, whatever the actual metrics of the conversation are, the Westerner will usually be arguing that Russia could be better. And the Russian will answer that things could be worse. And both will be right, by the way. <laughs> you know, but the thing is, the, 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 the point is that, you know, people actually have, you know, it's not having recent living memory, a, you know, a, a, you know, a very clear trauma, you know, of, of seeing actually what happens when, you know, Democrats take over, they just steal everything. So they'd actually yeah. rather have, you know, a piece of that, of that. Uh, there's of, a, of that. there's a lovely Russian expression that today is worse than yesterday, but at least it's better than tomorrow. <laughs> and I think that that sums up with a lot of the thinking. Listen, I mean, we're coming into the last quarter. Um, I want to take your get your view on the, the big debate um, in the um, in the war now is the motivation that, you know, there's one camp, uh, the Vatniks, uh, that believe uh, it's all about NATO and Putin's paranoia about the West, uh, Ukraine specifically joining NATO. And then the other side, um, dominated by the Ukrainian side, uh, is that it's just Russian imperialism and that he um, doesn't see Ukraine as a country and that he wants to take it back. And, um, you know, NATO is a sort of an excuse for all of that. But I, I want to put to you, because from, from my perspective, I, I do actually think it's, it's largely about NATO. Um, and going through the timeline, it started with Gorbachev being promised... Uh, in 1990, James Baker, very specific meeting, not one inch expansion east, and this is all in the historic record. And then all the leaders went on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure Putin's, about that. No, well, I can send you the papers, but the declassified documents show that this meeting took place and that promise was made. Um, and Putin, whatever, but Putin himself has brought it up several times. And then that led to the famous Munich Security Conference, where he again alluded to these promises and said, we will push back. And then nothing happened. And then you had the ABM withdrawal, unilateral by the states. Um, and my diplomatic friends at the time who were involved in those conversations said the, the Kremlin freaked because that was a major pillar of security uh, from the Cold War era and the Russians didn't want to see it go. Uh, 
Uh, and then that led to 2012 when Putin uh, sacked Kudrin because he objected to the fact that Putin was taking all the money and pouring it into the army. And the modernization then started. That, um, that led to 2014, the annexation of Crimea. So, um, and then on to you know the, the Lavrov speech in 2020 where he, he laid down new rules of the game. We're not going to do this dual thing anymore where you sanction us on one hand and buy our gas on the other. You know, it's now all or nothing. Either you stop that and treat us like grown-ups, or um, we'll break off diplomatic relations. And then that was the beginning of the rise in tensions that led to the ultimatum in December and the two rounds in January, February, just before the war. And all of this is, and all of that was about NATO, um, that it was about security, that Putin feels threatened. And I agree that there was never any serious consideration on the Western side to let Ukraine in, partly because people like Merkel could see that Russia would do something like it's just done. Nevertheless, Putin, uh, people say he's irrational, but if you assume that he thought NATO expansion of Ukraine was inevitable, not necessarily just going to happen now or in 10 years, but that it was inevitable. He sees that as an existential threat to Russia. And so his logic would then become to strike now before everyone's ready, rather than wait to Ukraine eventually joining NATO when it's too late to do anything about it because you've got missiles on the border. So all of that, I mean, I, I see that as unfolding because I'm watching the story that started in 1990 with the Gorbachev promises and then ABM and then the other, you know, open skies, Trump pulled out of two, two more uh, of those Cold War security deals. Um, and Putin, who made it clear, he usually telegraphs his intentions well in advance. He said very clearly in, in Munich that, you know, I'm not going to stand for this. And so the whole thing developed over a long time and him preparing the army um, to bring us to this point. So that's the NATO argument. And the imperialist side argument, they, everyone points to that essay that he wrote, 5,000 words, saying Ukraine isn't real, and it's like, you know, Nash, our people. Um, but there's not that much on that side, uh, I think. No, I mean, so to, 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 to deal with your points in reverse order, I, I, I think that the, the imperialist argument is wrong. I think, you know, the Estonian prime minister is wrong. I think that um, people like Radek Sikorsky are wrong, that, um, you know, that if we don't stop him here, he's going to take, you know, the, the Baltics and Poland. I think that's nonsense, because actually the one quote that most, Putin's most famous quote is the collapse of the Soviet Union was a geo, the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. People forget the context or rather the first half of that sentence in November 2005 when he's addressing the Federal Assembly. Putin says, for the millions of Russians who found themselves stranded outside the borders of their homeland, comma, mm. the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. So, I mean, he is primarily an ethno-nationalist, not an imperialist. And that sounds like just sort of, you know, some, you know, international relations sort of speak, Fugazi. But actually, it's an important distinction, because in that essay as well, uh, uh, if you read it, you know, carefully, uh, he actually says, I respect Ukrainian statehood and traditions and language. Mm. The point is, of that essay, is that he doesn't believe that half of Ukrainians are Ukrainian. He thinks they are Russians because they speak Russian. He's an ethno-nationalist. He's not, he, you know, he thinks the Ukrainians have the right to their own state, or so he claims, but he just doesn't think they have the right to rule Russians. That's his logic. So there's about the imperialism thing. But about the NATO thing, I think there's a lot of sort of creative misremembering, because once again, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, but 
people forget that between the, the between 2009 and, two, and and the end of 2014, Ukraine had actually literally ruled itself out of NATO membership. You know, in that sense, you know, Yanukovych had solved the problem that he had actually you know passed the law, and very importantly, if you if um, I mean Michael McFall was present in every single meeting that and phone call you know, it was, it was on every call between Obama and Putin and according to um, according to McFall NATO expansion was not really was not mentioned it was not a major part of 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 Russian dialogue with the US it just wasn't really on the table it wasn't so, so this whole thing about you know you can retrospectively construct this sort of onward march of NATO, but I think like the biggest problem with NATO was actually not really clearly sufficiently clearly signalling that actually NATO's that the Ukrainian membership of of NATO was really out of the question, both legally and practically. And that very important summit of Bucharest in two thousand eight, which you which you which you rightly mentioned. Um, you Which know, I was they, just about to say that. I mean, that, that they, was a key yeah. one. Yes, except it was yeah, well, it depends how, how you parse it, because it was a key one in the sense that they actually, you know, Germany said that you know that they refused a membership action plan. They refused yeah, no. action plan. What they well, did, I, I had... they should have communicate, and this is the kind of fatal mistake, recognizing you know that Georgia and Ukraine, you know, would ultimately join in rather sort of rather dangerously open-ended language but actually it was just a communicate i mean the what was actually the result of the conference was they didn't actually move forward with nato with with, with georgia or or ukraine's military membership at all i mean I, I had um i had friends who were at that event and um the what i was told was that the americans were pushing very hard for a concrete offer an invitation with a date on it and that uh, Merkel and Macron, uh, or whoever was on under, I think at the time, um, resisted that stringently, and they didn't want to have NATO mentioned at all. And the compromise was to, um, to this very weak, this very mild, like you know, vague uh, invitation. Um, and the German side, in the meantime, uh, regret even doing that because it just fueled Russian paranoia. But I agree. I mean, I think Putin is paranoid about this question. If it doesn't come up in the bilateral talks, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, um, he is paranoid about that. And the Bucharest one really shook the Russians. They were very, very angry about that. Mm. Uh, it was a mistake to even offer. But the 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 instigator there was the states, who were actually pushing for a concrete offer with a date on it. And it didn't happen because the Europeans were trying to find a middle ground and keep the Russians happy because they're scared of what's just happened. Right, right. I mean, but the, the 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 other issue um, is if you're sort of constructing, as the Russians do, this sort of the inevitable eastward march of NATO, and you know you say that the United States was funding the Ukrainian military. Well, that's true, except that there's a major mm -hmm. issue with scale. I mean, the whole phone call between Trump and 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 Zelensky, the controversial one in 2019, where you know. Trump essentially to try to blackmail Zelensky. How much money are they talking about? They're talking about four hundred million dollars. 
Mm. So the Russians say like, oh, it's $400 million. But you know, the, the American military spends $2 billion a day. It's mm. literally like, like sofa change for the American military. So what that for, the, the fact that the American military is giving America, the, the Ukrainians $400 million a year, uh, by the way, to buy American equipment, which yes. is very, <laughs> by the way. So it's, it actually is an indication of how unimportant Ukraine is to America, not how important it is. It's yeah. literally just, you know, yeah, America gives six times more to Israel, by the way. Um, but the point is that it's um, when you're constructing that narrative of inevitable NATO expansion, um, the, the 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 fundamental flaw. Sorry, For Putin. It's, it's inevitable to Putin. I mean, that, that's the only way I can understand his rational. That if he believes that if he believes it's inevitable, then what he does now makes sense. Uh, I, I agree that it was never going to happen, and that if he was rational, he should have just taken the risk and carry on. Because the irony of all of this is that Russia was actually booming in October 2021. I mean, it, it had made it. There'd just been a, a dozen IPOs for a billion dollars each, and there were 24 more in the pipeline. And all my friends in business, you know, life was going well and flourishing, and they had big plans and expanding into Europe. And he screwed all of that up. Why? It doesn't make sense. He's mad. But he has this irrational fear of NATO expansion. Well, well, well the thing is, it's, 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 it's actually about much more than NATO expansion. because, uh, And by his lights, it's not irrational. Because um, if you read, I mean, Nikolai Patrushev, um, his former boss in the KGB, by the way, like high flyer in the KGB, unlike Putin, but, um, who um, was basically fired by the by the by the KGB age 38 as a major. He became a lieutenant colonel on retirement just as a formality. But anyway, so Nikolai Patrushev actually speaks about this at length. And he gave a long, a very terrifying interview where he sets out his worldview. It's not. NATO. It's more. They, Patrushev and by extension Putin, are totally convinced that the United States is committed to regime change in Moscow. Mm. They really believe that. And furthermore, cite tons of evidence. He's saying, like, oh, this, you know, democracy institute and this election monitoring, like, you know, and he, and, and Putin, and Patrushev, you know, cites the numbers, you know, apparently you know hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent to subvert russia mm. so in that sense actually um not only is putin paranoid but putin is actually receiving what he believes to be concrete information about how the united states is systematically undermining his regime and in that sense it's really important to understand that that the the poisoning rally in the Valley in august of 2020 and the ukraine invasion uh it, are part of the same project it's all mm. about protecting Russia from an assault that's led by the West. And Viktor Zolotov, who's the, you know, Putin's former uh, chief bodyguard and um, a, uh, a now head of the Russian National Guard, Zolotov said um, very significantly, you know, Ukraine doesn't exist. It just happens to be the place where Russia, the border between Russia and America lies. Right. And that's that's a very important that, that, that's that's a crucial insight into their strategic thinking. Isn't it's this wrapped up in really the... about, about Ukraine? It's 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 about this sort of supposed superpower struggle, which the Russians think, in their sort of unfortunately deluded way, you know, like a sort of divorced wife that thinks that her ex-husband is like you know obsessed with her and like sort of trying to sort of do her down all the time whereas actually the ex-husband that literally has forgotten she exists and like doesn't care yeah. 
and you know has 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 got a much more important you know relationship with you know, China in this analogy. But you know they the Russians just are convinced that 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 America is out to out to get them and destroy them, and this is a a defensive war. It's as a preemptive strike against the Americans in order to save Russia. That's really what they think. I agree. I actually think that that's how they see it. I mean, you know, if you follow this logic with this irrational belief that NATO expansion, then it makes sense to attack now when Ukraine is still weak enough and Russia is now strong enough after that long process of investment into the military and the stability of the Russian economy and the strength of the fiscal fortress. You know, the timing was perfect because those things suddenly were all done, ready, and then Putin strikes, you know, and Lavrov's, um, you know, new rules of the game speech in February 2020 when um, Borrell came over from the EU and he and offering actually to partner with and be more forgiving of Russia and Lavrov absolutely humiliated him, totally unnecessary, but it was a very clear decision then that, right, we've had enough. And I was about to ask you, isn't, isn't this wrapped up in the sort of Russian arrogance that, you know, we're still the equal of the states, we're the other superpower, and they're still recovering from the humiliation of 1991, where they lost that statement, that was deeply painful for Russians. And here Putin is like, we have to have that back, and I'm going to force the issue by taking up arms, and to be that superpower, which of course has gone horribly wrong, because they're not, as he's discovered. Yeah, and well, I mean, the, 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 this you, you you see immediately in all conversations with Russian officials and with you know, uh, with with Russians in general, actually, that they still somehow believe or that 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 they are the peer of America and China, without realizing that the Russian economy is thirty times smaller than the combined economies of NATO, mm. not three times smaller. 30 times smaller. I mean, it's, you know, the, R Russia's economy is actually smaller than uh, the, 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 the most European, you know, than, than, than um, is about the size of, uh, of Spain's. I mean, it's it, actually economically insignificant. But what they've done is they've, you know, confused the supposed, you know, respect that they won back in their region, you know, and with Syria, and all these sort of things that do it by sort of pretending to be a great power, you know, and projecting power in Syria, projecting power in the U.S. elections, for instance, which you know they were, um, you know, Rachel Maddow and NBC, you know, portray mm -hmm. the Russians as this sort of evil sort of superpower that's that, that, that's uh, that got Trump elected and so on. If 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 you think that you can, that you're that you can behave like a superpower, in other words, intervene in the Middle East and influence American elections, then you do get this, uh, that just encourages your 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 folly in actually yes. believing that you can behave like a superpower strategically in terms of, and militarily, and that's you know, the, the, the core of Putin's uh, error. I mean, he thought that he was as powerful or, you know, a contender, and turns out that he was not. Yes, as he's discovered to his cost. I mean, um, we've really nearly run out of time. Just in the last few minutes, um, could you give us a prognosis of how you think this war is going to end? Uh, well, I'm very sorry to say that uh, I'm, I'm not a military expert, but uh, I've spoken to some people who are. Um, the, the, the bottom line is that um, quantity beats quality at a certain point. Mm -hmm. So Russia has so such deep resources of manpower and dumb equipment i mean almost limitless capacity to source or produce dumb weaponry 
that they can actually hold out or even push back Ukraine, you know, superior morale, superior tactics, better army, better leadership, better equipment. All that is true. But at a certain point, those graphs intersect of quantity and quality. If we just throw enough men and enough material at that, they uh, Ukrainians will not be able to resist. And, and unfortunately, I fear that actually the Russian tactic right now, strategy right now to reverse the vector of the war, to actually have some kind of victory will actually just prolong it because um, in a word, I think the, the prognosis is that it's going to be a very long and protracted mm. hard fought battle, unfortunately. Yes, no, I agree, um, which again, I think is part of the um, thinking behind the, um, the tanks conversation that's going on at the moment and the West is trying to work out what to do because they realize, well, I don't know, it's a stalemate at the moment, um, despite the Ukrainian victories recently um i mean look very nice to see you again thank you so much for taking the time that was absolutely fascinating brilliant brilliant thanks a lot ben and can you uh if you could send me a link i'd be very grateful of course right. and to everyone listening um i'm actually going we're going to put this uh onto our website um bne.eu it'll also be available on our youtube channel and um, we'll push it out on social media and the various other platforms we have so once again thanks to owen and i'll catch you all next time